millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, hello, hello. I'm John Elledge, and this is Skyline's The City Metric Podcast. As I record this, it's about lunchtime on Thursday, and it's local election day here in, well, not the UK, in England, and not even all of England, in parts of England. It's this fairly sort of random assortment of, of councils that are, that are up for, for election this year. It's, I've not, I've not been looking at all of them, because I am, I am but one man. But there's a couple I've been paying quite close attention to, and, you know, this episode is not going to be primarily about local politics we'll probably do a post-mortem next week once we have some results but they thought you know the the, the the races i am looking at i thought i'd give you a very quick rundown of one is the uh sheffield city region metro mayor election as if you're a long-time listener you may recall that last year i got very very excited about the arrival of, of six different metro mayors uh, in in different regions across the country Sheffield really should have been in that batch, but there's been a bit of a row over over the exact geography of that deal. Uh, originally, it was going to be a rather bigger area, including parts of not only the old South Yorkshire, but also parts of, of Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire. Then the, those county councils realised this would cost them money, so they, they didn't really like that very much. Then the ongoing row about devolution in the rest of Yorkshire um, caused many of the councils in that county to get together and demand a single deal for Yorkshire. Those included, I believe, Barnsley and Doncaster, which which are in South Yorkshire and in the Sheffield City region. But by that point, there was already a piece of legislation. So so the government told them in not so many words to bugger off. Uh, the result of this is that the Sheffield City region is not is not widely loved. Two of the four councils in it don't really think much of it. The new mayor is not going to have many powers. It's also not a very competitive election, which is a very, very gentle way of putting the fact that it's not a remotely competitive election. It's going to be Labour's Dan Jarvis. Like, it's a very, very red area. Um, to American listeners over here, red means left wing, not right wing. So, so yes, we already know who that's going to be, and that he also he doesn't really want to be mayor of the Sheffield City region. Actually, he wants to be mayor of Yorkshire. So we'll be spending his time in the job campaigning to extend the geography to encompass the whole of the county of Yorkshire, which also includes a number of other cities such as Leeds, Bradford, Wakefield, Hull, and so on. So, so the only real uh, thing to watch here is turnout. Um, Simon Jeffrey, I believe, of the Centre for Cities, was tweeting earlier that that if it got above 15%, that would be, that would be quite impressive, which is, which is depressing, but may well, in fact, be true. Because, I mean, why really would you go out to 
vote for someone who's definitely going to win in a foregone conclusion a job he doesn't really want uh, to represent an area that doesn't think it exists so that's fun the other the other thing i've been paying attention to is the the london elections where the 32 boroughs which make up greater london are are up for up for election this year it should be a good year for, for the Labour Party down here. There's been lots of talk about how uh, Labour is is really going to... Like, the Tories are stuffed in London, basically, because uh, Brexit is very unpopular here. The recent Windrush scandal in which British citizens of, of several decades standing uh, have been you know, dep- threatened with deportation or even actually deported because the Home Office burnt their paperwork and Theresa May's hostile environment immigration policy uh, is not is not a great look. All that's incredibly unpopular in London where, where the Tories have been struggling for a while. So polls have got it about 50% Labour, about 30% Tories. So off the back of that, there's been lots of talk about how maybe Labour might start winning some, some boroughs they've never won before. They they should in normal times win when Barnet in the north of the capital, which is they've never held it before, but it's recently become quite a tight marginal. The thing that might hold them back there is uh, that borough has a pretty large Jewish population, the the largest proportionally in the whole of the UK, and the 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 inability of Jeremy Corbyn to to really get a handle on the the, the Jewish community's uh, discomfort around some of the things he says and fears that some of the people he surrounds himself with might be anti-Semitic. That is the one place where it might actually hold the party back. So it's possible they won't win Barnet for that reason. Uh, Hillingdon and the west of the capital has tended to be a swing borough uh, as it kind of swings to the opposition party shortly before it wins a general election. So that's one to watch. I'm hearing from on the ground over there that it's not looking good for Labour. But, you know, it, Labour canvassers always think it's not looking good for them, and other parties' canvassers tend to think it is looking good for, for them. So it's difficult to know how much to make of that until the results come in. The two that I think really, the speculation really has got out of control are Wandsworth, which has been a flagship Conservative borough for, for 40 years now, and Westminster in, in the west of central London, which, which the Tory party has always held, and which Labour has never even got close to winning. I think it's very, very silly that the Labour Party allowed speculation to continue about the possibility to win either, let alone both of those. I think it's extraordinarily unlikely. So even if the party makes serious advances in the capital, as it it should do, some of the coverage may say it was a disappointment. But, you know, we shall see. We'll know next week. We'll probably talk about that. I'll probably drag some of my, my political colleagues back into the, the podcasting dungeon to talk about those things. But as I say, this is not actually a local elections episode, despite the fact I've been banging on about them for several minutes now. What we're actually going to talk about this week is the Thames Estuary. And to do that, we've got a guest I really should have invited here quite a while ago, to be honest. Hi, I'm Caroline Crampton. I'm the head of podcasts at The New Statesman, and I'm also currently working on my first book, which is a non-fiction work about the Thames Estuary. So I feel like before we get into the Thames Estuary, like it's taken me a long time to get you to do this podcast, considering you are basically in charge of podcasts around here, and you kind of prodded me to do it in the first place. So I should apologise if that's taken me more than two years to ask you. <laughs> that's okay. Also, you, you, you produce all the other New Statesman podcasts, but you don't produce this one, and that's why my one sounds a bit rubbish. <laughs> that's not true. Yours sounds lovely. No, that, that's, that sadly really is true. But anyway, so yes, the, the, you're writing a book about the Thames Estuary. Why, why did you choose that subject? Well, to be incredibly cliched about it, I didn't so much choose it as it chose me, in the sense that 
partly the book is about my family's immigration journey to the UK from South Africa and my parents who let's just put this out there are slightly eccentric people um, decided in their sort of mid-20s that you know South Africa in the 70s and 80s was not really a place they wanted to be anymore so they built a boat over three years in their evenings and weekends and then when it was ready they set off from Cape Town and they sailed all the way up the Atlantic up the English Channel and eventually well they decided that they were going to stay here and they also decided that they didn't have enough money to you know live on the land and therefore they needed to live on their boat for a while and they reasoned that the place they were least likely to freeze to death in the winter was probably London so they sailed all the way up the Thames estuary and lived on the boat in London for a few months and then when they finally managed to get jobs it just so happened my dad who's a engineer he got a job at the steelworks on the Isle of Sheppey which is one of the many glorious islands in the Thames estuary so they moved back out there on the boat initially and then in a house so it's where I was born where I grew up so that's kind of how I ended up writing about it because it's really the place I know about the most. That's an incredible story, which, despite having known you for a number of years, I had no idea about... Like, your parents, like, literally built a boat to come here. They didn't just get on a plane. Yeah. It's, it's, effectively, they built a house and then sailed it across an ocean to... Yes, they did. Uh, my sister and I both have trouble processing people's amazement at this if you know what I mean because it's just been so much part of our lives and upbringings that we're like yeah well obviously didn't your parents come here on a boat they built so you know we're we, we try very hard to see it objectively but like for instance in my parents house they have these photographs that run all the way down the stairs that are of their journey to Britain as it were and in the first one it's like the fiberglass pieces of the boat being delivered and then the last one is this really wonky picture of Tower Bridge that my mum took when they came up the river uh, for the first time. And it's really wonky because she's standing on the deck and the water's a bit choppy. But that's kind of the journey that they made. That's that's amazing. I kind of I'm, I sort of want to keep talking about this, but we should probably get on to the actual <laughs> yeah. the actual estuary. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll do this bit another time. But OK, so so there is a difference between a river and an estuary and there's a difference between an estuary and a sea. Is there a kind of like... I mean, whether sort of, you know, officially or in your mind, is there a sort of a, an actual sort of point you can sort of point to and sort of say one becomes the other? Like, what actually is the estuary? So there are lots of different definitions that are slightly different, but I think they generally agreed to be the sort of transition zone between a river and the sea. So still enclosed, but the banks widening. Often, you know, in some places, um, estuary kind of merges with delta, you know, in that, like the Nile Delta, it gets very flat and the water gets very slow moving and spreads out over a really wide area. But in the case of the Thames, it doesn't do that. It just really widens out. But then also there's some stuff to do with where the kind of tidal stream meets the river's stream. Although, again, the Thames is a little bit of an exception in this because the tide in London goes all the way up to Teddington where people I think we'd all agree that the river itself carries on much beyond Teddington so I think people differ in this but I think in the Thames basically once you're past about Greenwich Thames barrier area you're basically in the estuary and then it carries all the way on and where it ends this is something I'm currently grappling with 
in the writing of the book because it's called The Way to the Sea. So I'm supposed to be like ending where the sea starts, but nobody really, really agrees where that is. There is definitely a difference in in character as you kind of move east up the Thames, though. I mean, like, if, if you kind of look at any of the sort of the suburbs of West London on the Thames, like, the Thames tends to be quite picturesque. It's a place with, like, you know, pubs and restaurants a lot of it where people, you know, people want to be close to it. At some point, it shifts to being this just kind of, like, impenetrable grey barrier in the landscape. It's kind of a hole in the map, almost. It's like there is no way... You can't really cross the Thames very easily east of about the Isle of Dogs. So it's just kind of like the world ends at the Thames. And that does kind of coincide with this sort of change of character you, you described, doesn't it? So, yes, the, the Thames estuary is very low-lying and muddy and silty. And the tidal range is massive. So without the kind of investment that's been put into further upriver stretches of the of the Thames where it's been kind of embanked and drained and sea walls built and all that kind of thing. The estuary's land is not that useful. You can't really farm it that well. It's not very safe to build on it. It floods a lot, all that kind of stuff. So from about the 19th century onwards, because it was this, as you say, this kind of grey hole in the landscape, 19th century London started to outsource its unpleasant problems to it. So it was a really good place to build unsightly structures that you didn't want any nearer to the city, but that you did need to have, like power stations, sewage works, cement works, docks, that kind of thing, that would, as you say, be hugely out of place in Hammersmith or Putney or something. But somehow it's fine to have them at Gravesend or Cliff or somewhere like that. So, yeah, it is not that accessible as a place to get to know and I suppose that's why it's a bit unusual that I do feel such a connection to it and know it so well but that's just because my family was always kind of waterborne as it were. I mean what do you think the role that the, the estuary has played in in the life of the city has changed over time with the sort of redevelopment of Docklands and kind of the decline of that heavy industry and so on? It's definitely changed but it's also this outsourcing process has continued because one of the really unique things about London, actually, is unlike a lot of other historic port cities, London is still a major port and the geography of the estuary is what's enabled that. So, yeah, while the inner London docks have completely, they, you know, they were closing in the 60s and 70s and 80s and now have been turned into flats and city airport and the Excel Centre and all that kind of thing. Just in, I think it was in 2011 or 12, the Port of London Authority opened a new container terminal in the Thames estuary called London Gateway and it's you know it's one of the biggest in Europe and it continues to bring in loads of money and it's still the port of London it's what it's still called so docks for instance is a good example where they've just kind of hopped down the river as the demands for bigger ships and better cranes and all that has has grown over the centuries it went from you know ships used to tie up right by the custom customs house mansion house area right down to the Isle of Dogs then out beyond that to Tilbury and now London Gateway. So it's just moved down river. So where, where is London Gateway, sorry? Is that Tilbury or is that even further out? No, that's much, much further, completely separate to Tilbury. So it's, do you know where the Who Peninsula is? So if you're thinking of the Kent side, mm. you get Gravesend and then the land kind of curves up slightly and that's called the Who Peninsula and the very end of that is called the Isle of Grain. And on the Essex side, um, you get um, this sort of long silty area after Thurrock and Greys 
and Tilbury um, before you get to South End much further out. And London Gateway is on reclaimed land, sort of in between Greys and South End. Ah, so Stamford La Hope, I think, is there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you 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 grew up in Kent. I grew up in Essex, so I kind of have I see I see the same geography from from the opposite side. I mean, what what I find interesting about that is we do now we do have this whole stretch between about probably about the Thames Barrier and the Tilbury London Gateway, which sort of doesn't really fit into either version of the modern estuary. You know, it's not it's it's not sort of the functioning industrial bit we still have further out, but it's not it's not undergone that redevelopment of kind of like you know Docklands and so on. Mm. I mean, do you have any sense of what the what the future is for that for that whole stretch? I think it's very, very gradually starting to be repurposed for sort of new, cleaner industry or for recreation. There are places where I remember when I was a child and we used to sail to London for half term and stuff like that, because obviously the best way of getting to a museum is to go on a boat. (laughs) Um, This further example of my parents' idiosyncratic ways. You know, I remember there being landfill sites and stuff, which are now nice parks that you can see from the river and that kind of thing you know so there there is a sort of a movement in that direction but it's really slow and to be honest though a lot of things are just still there falling to bits for the book last year I did another journey down the river with my parents they came and met me on the boat in London and we sailed out to sea from there and whilst I was really really surprised in some ways about how much things have changed for instance how much cleaner the river is than when I was doing the same journey 10 years ago like I saw seals in the water something I've never seen before but also just all these massive sheds and factories and like old cement works and stuff, which you can see maybe a tiny corner of them is still operating, but most of them are just derelict. And this is something that you see in the estuary going back 100 years, is that because it's not a place that's like valued for what it looks like, it's not, quote, a landscape in that sense, when a power station ceases to be up-to-date functional technology instead of it being demolished or you know turned into a fancy gallery they just build another one next to it which is not something I think you find much in Britain actually because we're quite a small island we tend to prize our space and our views and our vistas but not in the Thames estuary really. Yeah and there's something I remember and you can still see it to a certain extent now but something I certainly remember from being a kid in the 90s is if you go to the the the, the bit of the Thames that goes runs past Newham, so just just like the eastern, very eastern edge of Docklands, there were buildings that were literally falling down in the nineties that had been, I think, I think they'd been bombed during the Blitz, and were like you know buildings standing at an angle, and they'd just been abandoned because there was no there was no kind of pressing need to sort of use that lamp or anything else, so they just kind of like you know blocked it off and, and moved on, and it's just really sort of kind of crazy to see that sort of industrial landscape in it in a, in a busy city like London. Yeah, well, I remember uh, probably around the same time, sort of early to mid nineties, when I was a child and we would, as I say, sail up to London for weekends and stuff. My job would always be to stand on the deck with a boat hook and sort of repel chunks of stuff in the river that might hit the boat because there were just jetties and buildings that were just constantly like dropping chunks of wood and god knows bits of masonry into the river and in a fast tidal stream it would sort of come at you quite fast and could make a hole in your boat if you weren't careful so I would stand on the edge and like poke things that might hit us (laughs) which again was kind of normalized for me as a child but when I think back on it I'm like that's crazy like 
London is London, you know, this famous world global city. And yet there I was having to like repel bits of stuff that might make a hole in our bed. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So I want to talk about the sort of politics of of the area around the estuary because it's like it's a bit ukippy isn't it as you go further out on, on on both the Essex side and the Kent side like Nigel Farage tried to get elected in in Thanet which is another of those of the Kentish islands in the estuary right but like there's you, you do see the same sort of thing in Essex as well I mean why do you do you have any sense of how that happened well it actually started in the late 70s early 80s so the BNP's first elected councillor was in the Isle of Dogs and it was during that period you know when the um, London Docklands uh, Development Corporation Thatcher's dream for how to privatise East London was right at its beginning and really aggressively uh, you know relaxing regulation and letting private companies just buy up land and build skyscrapers right next to where former dockers lived and that kind of thing and there was this real problem on the Isle of Dogs which is something that we've had again and again where there were a lot of uh, recent Bangladeshi immigrants and stuff living there and the white working class population a lot you know more than half of them had lost their jobs with no possibility of any future job after the docks closed that kind of thing there was this resentment that incoming families were getting council houses before people who lived there at the same time as luxury apartments were being built all over the place that kind of stuff and labor had this really awful dog whistle election slogan that was like homes for working people or something like that and anyway this early bnp guy took advantage of that and he managed to win a council by election in millwall he then lost like eight months later when the actual election came around but that was kind of i feel like the starting gun for a lot of this because a lot of those things i've just mentioned people will recall from even how we talk about brexit these days you know former industrial areas, people who've lost jobs in industries that have just closed, they've got skills that just aren't relevant anymore. 
in this case, you had like aggressive Tory government trying to repurpose the land for banking and finance and stuff that those people were just not going to be able to participate in. And inevitably, this kind of nativist sentiment was on the rise. So I think that pattern has just then repeated as those people, you know, moved further east as the Isle of Dogs gentrified and they couldn't afford to live there anymore. They end up in places like Barking and Dagenham. And then you see the, you know, the BNP problems that Margaret Hodge had in 2004-05. Same thing again. And then I think UKIP as the kind of inheritors of that nativist vote, it carries on. Like um, in the 2015 election, UKIP came extremely close to getting an MP there um, in Thurrock. And they still have lots of councillors. As you say, Medway Towns on the other side of the river, very UKIP-y, Thanet, extremely UKIP-y, Farage's seat of choice. Um, yeah, so I think it is all just connected to this sense of being left behind, the sense that, you know, our industry's gone and the government's not doing anything to help us replace our jobs. And also the sense that because... Because it's a port area, traditionally, people are used to encountering lots and lots of different people of all different races and cultures. But as the port has declined, I think a kind of defensive attitude has developed. So like um, Thurrock, I think between the last two censuses, so 2001 and 2011, the BME population doubled from about 10% to about 20%, which I guess feels like quite a lot if you live somewhere quite small like that, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I know... I, I know some of these places quite well because I grew up a bit a bit further north away from the Thames, but I know Barking and I know Dagenham and Farrock and so on. Um, and it kind of, I think, in a lot of ways, they feel like a sort of northern industrialised town that someone's plonked on the on the sort of eastern edge of London. Because I mean, you look at Dagenham, where where most people lived on the sort of Beckenry Estate, which is the largest council estate in in the world, I think, and most people worked at the sort of the huge Ford car plant there, and and that and that plant's been sort of employing fewer and fewer people as the decades have gone on. So you do kind of have this sort of you know the sort of social and economic characteristics of a place like Barnsley, but but half an hour up the district line from the city, it's kind of yeah, it's it's just kind of a, it's a crazy combination, really. It is. And I think, as well as I think all of the stuff that Barnsley's got going on, you then have the added friction when those two worlds kind of rub up against each other. And that's what you had in the Docklands in the 80s, you know, where you had bankers buying incredibly expensive apartments in former warehouse buildings and then also insisting that the developers put electronic gates everywhere because they were worried about the you know the former dockers coming and vandalizing their cars and you know so all of that just adds an element of like class resentment that i think is still quite live today so so i mean what's kind of the what what's the sort of most interesting thing that you found out in your research for this book or the most most shocking thing perhaps so I think the most shocking thing, and I apologise in advance to any listeners who might be eating while I'm talking about this, is actually to do with sewage and how the Thames estuary played a part in what London did with sewage for a very long time. Because I didn't, having even though having lived in London for nearly a decade, at the point when I started writing this book, I did not know that when Joseph Bazalgette cleaned up the Thames after the great stink of London in the 1850s. You know, he built the great embankments with their intercepting sewers to take rather... So instead of just pushing all the sewage into the river, wherever people fancied, it was taken cleanly away uh, east. What I didn't know was at that point was they were still just pumping it out into the river, just a bit further east, away from where people 
you know, posh people lived who would care about it. So they were still um, from the sewage works at Beckton. They were at high tide pumping all of the sewage in this really like pressurized horrible concentrated form out into the river and then letting the tide take it away out into the estuary and this worked for a few years and then in 1865 something which is now called the princess alice disaster took place where about an hour after high tide so just after all the sewage had been jetted out into the river and was starting to flow back down a passenger ferry that was returning from a day trip to Margate, um, hit a coal steamer in the centre channel in the Thames, right outside the Beckton <laughs> sewage works, and the uh, Princess Alice just like broke up and went under incredibly quickly, and nearly 600 people died. I think some estimates put it at 650, which I think is the worst shipping disaster ever in British waters. But what made it even worse? Because you think you know if people fall in in the Thames at that point, when it's not that wide, why couldn't they rescue them, you know? And the reason was because of the sewage. People just drowned in the sewage immediately. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's horrific. So I say I'm really sorry about people who are eating. And But there are some, in some of the newspaper reports at the time, there are some horrific details about how, you know, they undertakers were having to make coffins that were like three times larger than usual because bodies had swelled up because of all the noxious, horrible stuff in the river. And it was just absolutely awful. But anyway, that was the consequence of the so-called cleanup of the river, is that they just pushed it east to a place that no one really cared about. And so then after that happened, their solution, and this endured until the early 90s, 1990s, was that instead of pumping it out into the river, they just put it on boats and then took the boats even further out into the estuary and dropped it at sea or at the point where the estuary kind of becomes the sea. And those were called bovril boats. And yeah, as I say, they, they carried on using them up until the early 90s when EU regulations kicked in and said, no, you really just can't put all your sewage in the sea that's not allowed <laughs> but yeah that completely shocked me when I put all that together I was like this is absurd so this you know this great Victorian engineer who gets hailed as the savior of London he prevented all of these cholera outbreaks and all this kind of stuff his solution was just to move the problem further down river to a point where no one would really notice but I mean that has kind of been a consistent thing in the life of London just as you say like shoving everything to the east mm. And you can kind of see it with even... You remember Boris Island? Yeah. When Boris Johnson wanted to, like, close Heathrow, redevelop it, and build an, a new airport on an island in the Thames estuary. And even in that, you can kind of see this assumption that, you know, the people to the west of London are just kind of more important than the people to the east of London. Yeah, it's amazing how that dichotomy still endures. and But it definitely does. And I think it, it's still happening, but maybe in a slightly more positive sense now, in that, for instance, um, there are m three massive wind farms in the Thames estuary now. Um, one of them, the London Array, it's called, is I think the biggest in the world, or was until very recently the biggest in the world. And they generate a huge amount of energy. They're the massive offshore type, you know, with really huge turbines out on uh, concrete plinths out at sea. And I think they're quite cool to look at. I think, and especially if you're, there's an exclusion zone around them. But if you're sailing, you can obviously go a lot closer than you can see them from the land. And they make this really cool noise. It sounds a bit like they're breathing. But obviously, that's not something that people would be hugely happy to have further 
up the Thames or say you know I know there's been a big fuss about the um, wind farm they're building off Brighton you know people complaining that it ruins the view and all of this Um, I don't think there was much complaint or if it was it wasn't given much heed about them building wind farms in the Thames estuary you know people on the Isle of Sheppey are just supposed to deal with that so I suppose it's still happening that um, we're putting things that are necessary for London's future out in the estuary because we don't want to have to look at them higher up. But I'd rather they were wind farms than boats full of sewage. Well, wind farms are, are better in, in most senses, I think. Although you can get you can get energy from sewage, so maybe we shouldn't be quite so critical. So. Yeah, you can. And so now, now that they're not allowed to use the Bovril boats anymore, they you know it's partly incinerated and partly converted into like agricultural product that kind of stuff so you know it is recycled now but i do feel like with as with a lot of these things it's it's only it's only necessity that forces the change nobody actually wants to avoid putting it in the estuary it is quite apt though because if you sort of think of like those sort of 18th century car- political cartoons which shows like great britain as a person i mean that is that is anatomically correct <laughs> Yes, I suppose so. So that's that's something. Anyway, as we as we as we speak, you're what five weeks away from from your final manuscript. Is that the plan? Uh, don't remind me. Yes. <laughs> but but like I, I appreciate it's probably not going to be out for a, a little bit when people can hear this podcast. But do you want to just sort of like t- say the sort of name and and publisher and so on, so that people can put it on their Christmas list or whatever. Okay, yeah, it won't even be out for Christmas, but you'll probably be able to pre-order it by then. Um, so, yes, it's going to be The Way to the Sea, uh, published by Granta, I think in spring 2019, probably April or May. And, yeah, if you follow me on Twitter or something, then you'll find out when you can actually buy it. Cool. Well, thank you very much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.